As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found us out, but your commandments are our delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever, and so we pray that you would give us understanding that we may live. With our whole hearts we cry, answer us, O Lord. We will keep your statutes. We call to you, save us that we may observe your testimonies, and hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 10. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the book of Proverbs, and we've come to chapter 10, uh, verse 15. So chapter 10, verse 15, Proverbs is right near the middle of your Bible between Psalms and Ecclesiastes, Proverbs chapter 10. We're going to begin our reading at verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter. And that'll be our text for this morning, Proverbs chapter 10, verses 15 through 32. Let us pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. Poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is a pleasure to a man of understanding. But the wicked dreads will come upon him, But the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be moved, never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, I titled this sermon, Wisdom, Wisdom's Deeds and Destinies. Um, sometimes when you have to give the title for the bulletin on a Wednesday, you're not sure what the sermon is about yet. 
Um, so I took that from Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke and trusted that he would be right, that that would be what this passage is about. Um, this is truly, uh, sometimes when you see these contrasts, you think, what can we make of this and how, do we, how can we put it to, together, organize it, think about it? Um, but one of the things that continues to come across in the book of Proverbs is it's not a book about deed consequence. You do this and this happens to you. Do A, B follows. Um, it's not so much wanting us to do that. It's wanting us to understand not deed consequence, but character fate. Um, that your character is going to um, tell you how things are going to work out for you. Um, that character is destiny. Um, I happened to be reading something this week and it quoted Heraclitus, the, the pre-Socratic, uh, or the, the pre-Greek philosopher who said, character is destiny. So I thought it was perfect timing. I wanted to quote that to you, but I didn't want to leave the impression that I sit my spare time reading Heraclitus. Um, you'd probably, maybe you'd think better of me, maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. It could break both ways. Um, but I just, I came across that. And I thought that's exactly what Proverbs wants to teach us. Uh, Solomon had that centuries before uh, Heraclitus came to it. That character is destiny. How we are before the Lord determines who, where we go. Um, where we're going to go. That's what Proverbs wants to teach us. The righteous character works out to a destiny that is blessed by God. Uh, Because God blesses the righteous, they live before his face. And that's really what Proverbs is after. Not trying to tell you simply, do one thing and this will follow, but trying to give a whole orbed presentation of life and say this character that God is forming by wisdom is what leads to blessedness. That's what God wants for his people. Uh, For them to live a blessed life before his face. To find that way that leads to life in its fullness. That's what God wants for his people. uh, That we would live blessed lives before the face of our God. And this section in particular shows us that a righteous character built on the foundation of wisdom produces that blessed and secure life before the face of the Lord. That's what these contrasts are really teaching us. Um, The the secret to, to security The secret to blessing uh, before the Lord is to live a life that's pleasing to him, to to find that righteous life that can be found only in God. Um, So by a series of contrasts, again, uh, wisdom is being taught to us. um, And by this series of contrasts, we're going to be taught how the Lord's wisdom shapes our reality, sanctifies our speech, and secures our future. That's really what this passage is about, how the Lord's wisdom shapes our reality, sanctifies our speech, and secures our future. And that's how we want to think about this passage together and bring bring together these strands of contrasts that we see in this passage. The first thing we see is that the Lord's wisdom shapes your reality. That really is the truth taught in verses 15 through 17. The Lord's wisdom shapes your reality. Um, Verse 15 presents us with a simple description of reality. Uh, The reality of being rich versus the reality of being poor. It's a simple statement about reality. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and the poverty of the poor is their ruin. Maybe it would be easier to see the the point to think of that not so much as ruin, but as terror. Um, There are things that that the poor have to worry about that people of means don't have to worry about. That's the simple statement being made there. 
um, that there are things that the poor have to worry about that the wealthy don't. The poor worry about how to pay the bills. The poor worry about living paycheck to paycheck. The poor worry about not having a financial safety net. The poor worried about being oppressed by those who had more and had more power in those days. There are, there are terrors to the poor that the rich don't have to worry about. And for the rich at times, this wealth can be his strong city, um, can protect him against the things that terrify the poor. In that sense, it's a simple description of the reality of the world. Um, but one of the things that Proverbs does is teaches us how to how to think about the realities of this world, right? Um, five, it's interesting, five times in the Proverbs of Solomon, he will talk about wealth, this word that's used here in verse 15. And in, out of those ten, five times we'll be told to prize wealth as a blessing from the Lord. And five times we'll be told not to trust in wealth as a savior. Um, and that shows us that balance we see in what, in what is a wise approach to wealth, to realize that what we have is a blessing from the Lord, but it's a poor substitute for a Savior. It's a poor substitute for the Lord if we try to make it our strong city. Because what does Proverbs want us to do? It wants us to, to understand reality, but wants our reality to be shaped by the truth of God's Word. Right? If you just read that proverb in isolation, you, you might think to yourself, okay, then my goal in life should be to build a strong city of wealth. That's, I guess, what I should be about in the world. Um, and what does Proverbs immediately want us to do? It wants us to shape our reality so that we understand things not as the world sees them, but to have that reality shaped by uh, what, God, what God's word tells us, to reflect on that reality and to have our reflection shaped by what God's word teaching us. Because what does the very next verse teach us? The wage of the righteous, verse 16, leads to life. The gain of the wicked to sin. Uh, Does Proverbs want us to make wealth the end-all, be-all of life? No, because Proverbs immediately says, you know, there's a better security than the rich man has, and that's what the righteous has. He has better security than the rich. Another way of translating that, that phrase in verse 16 would be to say, the wage of the righteous is surely life. There's an emphasis being placed on the guarantee of life to the righteous. And life in every sense of the word. Right? We've, we've seen that as we've gone along. When God promises life, he doesn't just promise it quantitatively in terms of length of life. He promises it qualitatively in terms of the blessedness of life. What can the righteous be assured of? Surely they will have life. And who can guarantee that kind of life? Who can guarantee that kind of life to the righteous? Well, only God can guarantee that kind of life. That's why that kind of life will come. That's why we can be sure of it. Because God has promised it. God is the one who grants it as a blessing. God will uphold this order and make it happen. Um, It also helps us to shape our view of wealth. Because what is wealth worth if it's not acquired in righteousness. Uh, there's a diligent labor that we've been, we've been urged to prior in, in Proverbs. We're not just to sit around. It's not as if poverty is, is being presented to us as a virtue. 
But what is God's word doing? What is it shaping our reality? It's saying that wealth is worthless if it's wealth gained by wickedness. Because what comes of wealth gained by wickedness? It comes to the same end that the wicked come to. Nothing. Right? Verse 16 tells us the gain of the wicked is to sin. And by extension, by that contrast, not just to sin, but to death. If the wage of the righteous leads to life, what is the opposite? The earnings of the wicked is surely sin and by extension, death. You see how Proverbs is shaping our reality. Sure, wisdom is a rich man's strong city, but if it's not acquired by righteousness, if you don't have righteousness to go with it, you don't really have life. And if you have wealth and wickedness, you have nothing to expect but sin and death. It's not the strong city you think it is if you're wicked. And that's why verse 17 then comes and summarizes that reality, that difference between those who had their reality shaped by the Lord's wisdom and those who have not. Um, It puts it in stark contrast. The one who's been shaped by this perspective is on the right path. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. Whoever has had their reality shaped by wisdom and sees clearly the world, they're on the path to life. Not so those who've missed the point. They lead themselves only astray. The second part of verse 17, he who rejects reproof leads others astray. It's interesting when these contrasts are not quite equal, they kind of pull ideas from the one half to the other. The implication is not only is the wise on the path that leads to life, but he's able to guide others on the path that leads to life. His wisdom is not for himself alone, but the fool is not only leading themselves astray, they tend to drag other people down with them. Um, and we, we, have to, we have to recognize that as the danger of the foolishness of the world is because they will not be content to go their own way alone, but they're always trying to drag other people with them. Uh, not just walk that road that leads to destruction, but encouraging others to come along and walk arm in arm to destruction. And that's what wisdom helps us to do, is see, no, that's not the path of life, and actually helps us also then to grab people by the arm and say, why don't you come with me on the path that lives? And that's what we're called to do for one another. Our wisdom is not just for ourselves alone. It's to be used for one another. And that's where we see that also happening in our speech. That's one of the ways that we either help or hinder other people is by our speech. And that was, that's the second part of the thing we see in this verse. What does the Lord's wisdom do? It sanctifies our speech. Um, it helps our, our speech to be worth something. We see this teaching on speech, particularly in verses 18 through 21, and then also summarized again in verses 31 and 32. But again, we have a series of contrasts, and we can get, kind of get lost in the weeds of all these contrasts, trying to figure out what, is, what, is, what, what are we really being taught here. But we're seeing here, in a sense, is the contrast of value between the wise speaker and the foolish speaker, between the righteous and the wicked. There's a value to what the wise offers. Um, and that value is sort of summarized in verse 20. What, what is the speech of the righteous worth? Verse 28 tells us it's choice silver. 
The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. It's, it's worth a lot. Uh, choice silver is a kind of silver that has the impurities removed. Right? There's a difference between if you see something that says this is silver and something that says this is sterling silver. Um, it tells you something about the purity of that silver. Um, and how is that silver purified? How is, how is the impurity worked out of silver? It's worked out by fire. So there's a picture here. It's a wonderful metaphor, not just of great value, but of tested value. Um, value that's sort of been tested by the fire. The, the metaphor communicates not just the value, but how this wisdom has tested and stood up under the test. It's shown itself to be of great value. And then where does the value come from? How, do, how does it attain this great value? And I think 31 and 32 give us insight into where the value comes from. Uh, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. Why is their speech so worthwhile? Because it brings forth, it bears fruit. It bears the fruit of wisdom. When they talk, wisdom is spread abroad. And everyone benefits from wisdom, from that kind of skill that's brought to bear in the world. That's what the righteous offer. They produce wisdom. And verse 32 tells us, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. It's righteous speech. It's wise speech. It's speech, as one person said, seasoned with grace. It knows what's acceptable to the Lord. That's why the mouth of the righteous is so valuable. Because when they speak, they speak things that are wise and they speak the things that are acceptable to the Lord. They lead into light. They lead into truth. There's value to what they say. Um, And that's why they're so worthwhile to the community. That's why they are such a blessing. And how do, the, how do the righteous show their speech is a blessing to the community? It's kind of interesting in that the first thing they know what to do is when not to say things. You notice that one of the blessings, one of the marks of prudent speech is restraint. Um, it's an interesting proverb. Maybe lots of us have thought about it in isolation. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Sometimes you show your wisdom, you show your your prudence by knowing when not to speak. And I think that's worth meditating on, especially in our culture, since our culture is talking all the time. Uh, We live in the the world of the 24-hour news cycle. Uh, We live in the world of endless podcasts. We live in the world where people are on every any number of social media outlets, and speech is just flying all the time, all the time in the world. Um, our speech is going on all the time, and so it's interesting to think that when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but a prudent person restrains his speech. Um, and why is that prudent? Um, some, someone might say, well, I would, fin- I would finish that proverb. If I was going to edit the proverb, I would say, He who restrains his speech is cowardly. Aren't there times you have to speak up? Aren't there times you have to say things? Uh, Yes. But that's not what this proverb is about. 
Remember, we have to remember Proverbs only are speaking about one thing at a time. And we have to always keep in mind that there are different Proverbs for different times. Right? He who hesitates is lost. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Um, there are times where both of those can be true depending on the circumstance. But the proverb is communicating here is there's a time for restraining speech. There's particularly a time for restraining speech when you see that when words abound, transgression is not lacking. Why is restraint a mark of prudence? Like what one commentator said, the prudent knows the lethal power of rash words. Loquacity, using a lot of words, simply exposes one to making statements that are hasty or simply ill-considered or downright sinful. I think we can all agree if you watch enough 24-hour news TV, you see the danger of stupidity and sin on display with people that are talking all the time. Um, And we don't want to be like that. We don't want to say things that are ill-considered. We certainly don't want to say things that are sinful. Um, And we recognize that when there's hasty speech, when we're not thinking about what we're saying, um, transgression is not lacking. I think it's also a mark of prudence because the prudent know that transgressions are not stopped by words alone. Um, maybe you've seen arguments going back and forth on, on Facebook, on Twitter, or on whatever. And how many times have you seen at the end of those arguments someone say, you know, thank you for your input. This has really changed how I think about this. I've really been, I think this has settled it for me. You were right, and I was wrong about this. This has been a very helpful exchange. Thank you very much. No, often it's just competing monologues, right? People aren't really convinced. They're just arguing with each other back and forth. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody in particular. I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else. I've done this. Um, you know, but what, what are we taught? Words don't restrain transgressions. Those lie in the heart. That's not getting at the point. You can't stop sin by multiplying words. Now, the heart has to be gotten at. Like somebody said, silence is ambiguous, but it's less likely to cause trouble. And there are times when even when we might be inclined to to weigh in, Scripture tells us don't. Um, John Calvin has a wonderful exegesis of Titus 3. When Titus is told by Paul, avoid, in Titus 3.9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless and Calvin says you know sometimes as a minister you might feel you have to weigh in on these quarrels well somebody's arguing about the law this is my special I got to enter into this and he says interesting that Paul says to that minister just don't don't do it avoid it why because Paul understands the prudence of restraint at times Um, that it's prudent to not multiply words. Um, And there are times for that as well. And why do we restrain our speech? Well, the the other part of this verse helps us to understand when when to restrain in prudence and when to speak. We want to speak when we can shepherd others. That's what verse 21 tells us. The lips of the righteous feed many. That word for feed, we could just say, we could just say shepherd. When do we speak? When it will be a blessing. 
what, what do shepherds do for their sheep? They lead them to where they may eat. It's one of the chief jobs of the shepherd to feed the flock, to make sure that they are, they are eating. But of course, the shepherd also wants to provide for the people, to lead the, or to the sheep, to lead them, to revive them, to defend them. And that's what the righteous do with their speech. They don't multiply their words and multiply transgression and end up making things worse. When they speak, their lips feed many. Their lips shepherd many. They're helpful for other people. They're edifying. They build them up. They don't tear them down. And as that, they are a blessing for the community. And it's no surprise that again and again in Israel's history, the picture of what makes for the ideal king is a shepherd. One who will feed and provide for and revive and protect and defend. Um, and we see this in, in the life of our Lord being lived out above all. Um, his speech was always feeding his speech was always shepherding. Um, his speech was never just multiplied words for the sake of speaking. It never, it never multiplied transgression. It always helped. Um, that's what we want to do in following him. Make sure our words are spoken only when we will shepherd other people through them. We never want to be the, the portrayers and the the perpetrators of wicked speech. Because what is wicked speech by contrast? It's worthless. That's what verse 20 tells us. Tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. It's worthless. The wicked don't add anything to the conversation. They only detract. Why are they worthless? Again, 31 and 32 tell us. The perverse tongue will be cut out the mouth of the wicked only knows what is perverse. When they speak, they don't help. In fact, when they don't speak, they don't help. When they're not speaking, what are they doing? Verse 18 says they're concealing hatred. When they speak, what are they doing? They're lying and spreading injurious slander. Their, their speech is never helpful. Their tongues are fit for nothing but being cut out. They only know what is perverse. Someone said the wicked know how to be the devil's advocates, to confound the moral judgments of others and to overthrow God's rule. That's all they do, whether they speak or they remain silent. And as opposed to the wise who can feed many with their words, what, what is true of the fool they can't even provide for themselves with their words. And verse 21 tells us fools die for lack of sense. The righteous can help themselves and others. Fools can't even help themselves. Uh, they, they die for lack of sense. That's not the kind of speech we want to be involved in as Christians. That's not the contribution we want to offer. We should constantly be praying and asking God that he would grant us the wisdom to use our words wisely with prudent restraint that they would produce wisdom that they would publish what is acceptable to God 
that they would produce life-giving words that would nourish many and that they would be pleasing to our Father in heaven. That's what we should be striving for in our speech. Um, But one of the measures of the mercy of, of God's mercy and grace is that he wants us to be wise so that we won't experience the, the sorrow and the sudden destruction that comes on the wicked, but so that we will enjoy the sweetness and the security of walking in the way that he has set for us. That's why the final thing we see here is that the Lord's wisdom secures our future. The Lord's wisdom secures our future. Um, there's no future for the wicked. That's what this passage is teaching in a powerful way. And the sorrow of the wicked is spelled out in verses 23 through 26. Where does this life of wickedness really lead? It leads to nothing but sorrow. It may seem to begin with a kind of joy, the pleasure that comes from a joke. That's where, that's where the story of the wicked begins in 23. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. Um, we all take pleasure from a good joke. Someone has a really good joke, they tell us. We enjoy it. And that's what, that's what this picture is here, this enjoyment. But what does a fool get his enjoyment out of? Doing wrong. And there's a sense in which we're being told the wicked may for a time get joy out of the wrong that they're doing. But it's a joy that will not last. It's a joy that's brought to a deadly serious end. That as it progresses it becomes no joke. And what the wicked dreads will come upon him. You know, someone asked, what does the wicked dread? Well, the, the wicked really dreads God. And what is this telling us? It's all a joke while you do wrong until you come face to face with what you dread. A judge who's righteous and who's deadly serious about his righteousness. Because when that, when that storm of judgment comes, when the tempest comes, what becomes of the wicked? The tempest passes and the wicked is no more. They're swept away utterly in the judgment. It's, it's a sudden sorrow, it's a sudden hurt, like when someone drinks wine that, that's turned to vinegar without them knowing it, and the vinegar hits their teeth. Or if you've ever been a camp, around a campfire and the smoke suddenly blows in your eyes. Um, it's the irritation like sending a sluggard out to do something. It suddenly comes upon the wicked. Uh, this, this sorrow is brought home to them in sudden destruction uh, that comes in a complete way. What is the future of the wicked? Verses 27 to 30. Their years are short. What they hope for perishes. And it's the way of the Lord that brings destruction upon them. The way of the Lord is a stronghold of the blameless, verse 29, but destruction to the evildoers. What destroys them in the end? The way of the Lord. Because God is a just God. He will not leave wrongdoing unpunished. It's his moral government of the universe that brings them to ruin in the end. Because all who will not come to him by faith through the grace that's offered in Jesus Christ will face his wrath against sin. And then what will be true of the wicked in verse 30? they will be swept off the face of the earth. 
You will look for them but not be able to find them for they will have been utterly swept away. What is the Lord doing here in publishing this to his people? He is warning them about the sorrow and the destruction that comes on the wicked so it would not come upon them. So they would choose instead to live in the light of his word, responding to his call, and live in the sweetness and the security that he offers the righteous. What is the sweetness that he offers the righteous? We see that in verses 22 through 25, the wonderful promise that's contained in verse 22. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he does not add painful toil to it. It's the kind of blessing you don't have to work for. You don't have to slave for. It's a blessing that just comes because of the kind of God he is. It's not the blessing you work for. It's the blessing that comes from a just and gracious God uh, who wants to be a blessing to his people. Psalm 27 tells us, unless the Lord builds a house, he who builds it labors in vain. And and the, the point of this is to say, this is the assurance that the Lord will bless us, that we don't labor in vain, that we don't have to labor for his blessing. He gives it. And what does that blessing mean for the people of God? Well, unlike the fleeting pleasure that the wicked has in their wrong, like a joke that suddenly turns sour when God's judgment comes, God offers his people lasting joy in wisdom. Right? The joy from wrongdoing fades, but the joy from wisdom continues. Wisdom is a pleasure to a man of understanding. And whereas the, with the wicked dread comes upon them, what, what comes to the righteous? Right? The hopes of the wicked perish. Uh, what they dread comes upon them. What did they dread? They dreaded the Lord. What does the righteous desire? Because the desire of the righteous, we're told, will be granted in verse 24. What does the righteous desire? We desire the same thing that the wicked dread. We desire the Lord. Right? That's, a, that's the ultimate desire of God's people. Think of Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. What do God's people desire more than anything else? It's the Lord. To see him. To see him face to face. And what a wonderful thing it is to find that when the Lord comes in glory, when the Lord comes in, in the flesh into this world, when he, when he walks into the world and speaks to us, he tells us that his desire is for us to be with him too. That that expression of the psalmist's desire for God is the expression of God on earth to his people. That's what Jesus says in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What a wonderful thing it is to hear that our desire is to be with the Lord and to see his face and that his desire is to be with us and for us to see his glory. And that to know that that desire will come that it will arrive. Um, C.S. Lewis says powerfully in his weight of glory, in the end the face that which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other. 
either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. What a wonderful thing it is as the righteous to know we don't need to fear what kind of face will be turned to us. But the face that will be turned to us will confer that glory inexpressible that we long for. That when the tempest sweeps over in judgment, we will remain. We will not be swept away like the wicked. We will stand in the judgment before the Lord. And why? Because we stand on an everlasting foundation. The righteous is established forever. We are built on that stone that the builders rejected that's become the chief of the corner. That's why we will stand in the judgment and not be swept away because we are built on Christ, established forever, secure in him. He's where the righteous find their sweetness and where the righteous find their security. Verses 27 through 30 close with telling us about the security that is ours. And I know we're reaching at the end of the sermon and it's hard to continue to keep our attention. But someone said these last verses, 27 through 30, teach us of massive certainty that we should have in our God. The massive certainty that comes to the people of God. What are we assured of in verses 27 through 30? That the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Again, life in quality and quantity, fullness and length of life, eternal life. That's what the fear of the Lord guarantees to the righteous. Verse 28 assures us that our hopes will not perish, but that our expectations will be realized, and they will be realized in joy. The word here for joy is that kind of joy that can't be contained. It makes you jump or do something. It's that that joy that can't be contained. It has to be let out in some way. That's what's promised to come to the righteous. That joy and gladness that that can't be contained when all of the blessings of God come upon us. That's the joy that's promised to the righteous. Whatever we presently experience in terms of distress, that's the promise that awaits us. And how can we be sure of this? How can we be sure that these blessings will come upon us? Because we know the way of the Lord. It's the way of the Lord that is a stronghold to the blameless. Verse 29 tells us. We know the way of the Lord. That's the the prayer that encourages the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 132. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. We know the way of the Lord. That's why it's a stronghold to us. We know that his way to his people who love his name is to turn to us and be gracious to us. That's the hope that God's people have in their God. He is a mountain fortress for us because he is a gracious God who never refrains from turning to us when we call on him as those who love him. That is the stronghold of the righteous. That's what guarantees that the righteous will never be moved. Not because of something in us, but because of who our God is and who he's revealed himself to be in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope of God's people. That's how we know we'll never be shaken, toppled, or removed. That we will stand forever with our God. 
Because from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord is our God. He is for us. Therefore, we will not be shaken. God is a refuge for us. And even in the final judgment, when the whole world is consumed in fire, we will not be moved. Because God is a refuge for us. He is our stronghold. He is our strength. He is our refuge. This is the wonderful hope held out. The massive certainty that God's people can have in the Lord. May all of us here put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and learn and live out the wisdom of his word. And may his wisdom shape our reality and sanctify our speech and secure our future by his grace for our good and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, again, the the wisdom by teaching us in stark contrast between the destinies of the righteous and the wicked. We thank you, Lord, once again, that you are a stronghold and a refuge for us, that we can turn to you and know that you will be gracious to us because that is your way with those who love you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would put our trust in you more and more and find that sweetness and security in Christ, that that would help shape how we live this life, how we look at our reality and how we speak to our world, that we would do those things that please you and that we would follow after the example that our Lord has left for us. We thank you that we can be sure of your grace because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can know and look to his cross and know for certain that if you have given him to us, how will you not with him give us all things? So we thank you to know that we will not be moved because we stand on that solid rock and we give him the glory and thank you for sending him to us. Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.